Good morning. We have an opportunity to celebrate communion this morning, and that's a very special time for us each year to do so. We celebrate communion, I think, about seven times a year, and it's something that Jesus commanded us to do on a regular basis. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's in Luke 22, 19, and many other portions of Scripture. But he said, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't tell us how often we're supposed to do that, just that we're to do it. And I believe we do. And many other churches might take a different uh, frequency for how many times they do that for the year. But the important thing is that we remember. I'm going to do things a little differently this morning. Normally, this comes at the end, but I think this is worth reflecting on. And so I'm going to step away from the pulpit for a moment and just make a plea with you. Normally at the end of a communion message, we're given an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as our savior. I want you to be able to think about that first because often that can hit you cold. And uh, I want especially the young people who are in this room to think about this. And I also want you to think about this if you have been somebody who has attended this church for a while and you really don't know if you believe. What we're about to do this morning is remember Jesus' death on the cross. And that symbol, this act that we're going to take part in together, doesn't really have any meaning unless you have trusted in Jesus Christ yourself through faith. So even if this is something you've got to think about while I'm preaching this morning, that's okay. This is the most important decision that you could make in your life. For those of you who've already made this decision, you can sit back and, and just listen here, and then we'll get to the message. But for those of you who aren't sure, maybe if you're young, I just want to make you consider that this world that we're in, it had to come from somewhere. The fact that I'm speaking to you this morning means that we've been created, means that there's a God in this universe who made us. And I don't know if you've ever thought about eternal life before, what happens to a person when they die, but I want to let you know that there is a heaven and there is an eternal life. There is a life after this life. I don't know if you've ever even wondered if you know where you're going to go when this life is over. The Bible tells us very clearly that there is a heaven, that there is a God, and the only way for us to dwell with a holy God is for us to be holy ourselves. And if you know anything about your own life, you'd know that you are a sinner, that we do wrong things all of the time. We disappoint ourselves and we disappoint others. And that means ultimately we disappoint the God that made us because he created us to honor and glorify him. And the Bible calls these things sin. And unless we have a way to deal with this sin problem, we won't be able to dwell with God in heaven when this life is over. But there's good news, good news that I want you to consider this morning, and that is that God sent his only son into this world we just sang about uh, with the worship team. God sent his only son into the world who lived a perfect life while he was on earth so that if you believe in him this morning, the Bible tells us you can be saved, you can be forgiven of your sins, and God will call you his child. Jesus lived a perfect life and then was executed for crimes that he didn't commit not because he had done anything wrong, but because he was willing to take on the punishment that you and I deserve for those sins 
so that if we place our faith in him, we can be forgiven. God will look upon Jesus and that cross that he endured, that punishment that he endured, and say, my wrath is satisfied. Justice has been done on this earth. And because of that justice, justice that's been satisfied, you are now forgiven. You are now declared right in my sight. It's an amazing act of love that Jesus has demonstrated for us, but that has to be received by faith. We have to believe in him and accept that sacrifice on our behalf in order to be forgiven. Not only that, when the Bible calls on us to believe in Jesus, it's not just talking about a head ascent, saying that, you know, if I just believe and know that this person exists, therefore I'm free to do whatever I like for the rest of my life. No, belief means following him with our, with our lives. So this morning, I just want to say to anybody who might be here in this room, whether you're young and you've never accepted Jesus before, that you can do that. You can talk to your parents or you can talk to Pastor Cruz and I uh, after the service or one of the elders if you'd like, and you could believe in Jesus today. And you know what? If you say, Jesus, I want to believe in you and accept your death and resurrection on my behalf, you can know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven too and that you're going to be forgiven and that you won't have to stand before God ashamed of anything because he'll look at you and say, you are my son or you are my daughter. You are forgiven in my sight. Welcome to heaven. You are welcome into the kingdom of God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? So I want you to think on that. If you've never made that decision before, trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Think on that this morning as I preach. Because that's something that we want to make sure that you've done before we take of communion today because it stands for the sacrifice that's given on our behalf. And if that's not true of you, then we want to make sure that you get things right first. Now, with that being said, as we look at this passage that Pastor Cruz read for us, we're going to be looking at a slightly different aspect of communion this morning. And in fact, I want to reread that call to worship verse that we read together this morning. It was taken from Matthew 26, verse 29. It says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. We're actually going to be focusing on the future-looking element of communion and not just the past. And in that sentence that I just read, Jesus tells his disciples two things. He says this would be the last meal that he would share with them on earth because those words are spoken in the context of the Last Supper. And then after this meal, they would all go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And then soon afterwards, Judas would betray Jesus and have him arrested. So he's telling them that this is, in fact, his last supper with them on earth. But also, it's telling them another important thing. Jesus is saying that this isn't really his last meal with them. Because he says one day he will celebrate a meal with them in heaven. And so while the focus of Jesus' last supper is certainly on his death, for 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It certainly focuses on his death. While that's the main focus, there is also an aspect of communion that looks ahead to something greater. And that is a heavenly feast that Jesus just referred to. So as we partake of communion today, it is quite appropriate for us to look ahead 
and long with anticipation for this heavenly feast that he just only briefly mentions for us. He just says it very quickly. He says, you know, I will not eat of this and drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. It's a small statement, but it's a very, very important statement. We want to look ahead. You see, you and I weren't there for the Last Supper. That was long before any of us were born. But you know what's neat about this passage? Someday we'll get to be there. What we call the Last Supper in the Scriptures wasn't really the Last Supper, for that meal was just a foreshadowing of what is to come. So what is this future meal that Jesus Jesus alludes to? Can the Bible tell us anything about it? And to that I say certainly it can. Revelation 19, the chapter that was just read for us, tells us a little bit more about this heavenly feast. And in that passage, we find that it's given a name. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So what I'd like to do this morning is describe this future supper. And my hope is that by the end of this message, you will long for that day to come, just like Jesus' disciples did. My hope is that communion will not only serve as a reminder of what has already been accomplished, but that it will fill us with a hope of what is still to come. So let's look there. I hope you're turned in your Bibles to that, Revelation 19. Specifically, though, this morning, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9. So let's start in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. And as you can tell, this section begins with praise and celebration. But before we get into all that, I just want to give you a sense of where this fits in with the book of Revelation. When we look at what precedes chapter 19, we see this horrible section. There's this great tribulation that's been described all the way back in 12 and 13 with this red dragon or Satan. Uh, There's this individual known as the beast and then the false prophet, all described as opposing God and persecuting his people. We're also given this picture of a wicked city in Revelation called Babylon, And the description of this blasphemous prostitute in Revelation 17. Mixed in this portions of text, so we have chapter 12 and 13, and now I just mentioned chapter 17. Mixed in that, in chapters 15 and 16, we see God's judgment being poured out on the earth as well. And we don't have time to read all of that, but suffice it to say that it's a terrible description of the last days before Christ's return. And certainly it's a time of great turmoil. It's a mixture of persecution of believers here on earth, of evil just coming to the forefront, and then also God's judgment being poured out on the earth. These are heavy, heavy times. And at times as we read them, they're terrifying chapters to us as well. But then in chapter 17, verse 14, we see this bright reminder of hope. While the world seems to get worse and worse, and many nations gather to fight against God's people, we see verse 14 of chapter 19, which says this, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. 
And from there into chapters 18 and 19 and all the way to the end of the book, we see how the forces of evil never really stood a chance against the holy God of the universe and against the Lamb, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so in this chapter, verses 1 and 2, it says this. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. It says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is the beginning of the end for Satan and his spiritual forces in the world. And then in chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, it says this, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice in a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God and all his servants, all who fear him, small and great. That is a de declaration of God's victory. So even before Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, verse 11, with this incredible image of Christ on this white horse and, uh, and the sword coming out of his mouth, maybe you can picture that in your head. It's a wonderful passage. Even before all that happens and Satan's subsequent judgment and the like, there is a rejoicing in heaven for the battle that has already been won. In Revelation 19, 1 through 3, we see that there is a great multitude, which I take to mean a vast sea of both angels and believers. And these praise God for how he judged this great prostitute that's been described in the previous chapters. And it's difficult for us to say with certainty who or what this figure is, uh, who this represents. Many scholars seem to think that she stands for a, a wicked culture that will eventually arise or an influence or a system that's completely opposed to God and leads the world into all sorts of sins. Or perhaps she represents a literal person with great influence. But whatever or whoever this harlot represents, it says that she has been thrown down and judged by God. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, it says that the 24 elders and the four living creatures of heaven fall down and worship God with loud shouts. And I just want you to see this marks the turning point of the book. Again, we can't go through all of Revelation here, but if you can just get the sense of just the evil and the judgment and everything that comes before and now see this as the turning point, this is where things start to change. And I want us to stop and just consider the big picture here. Understand that this declaration of victory in Revelation chapter 19, this is the time that we have all been waiting for on this earth. Don't miss that. Throughout our lives, we have known that one day Jesus would come back, bring an end to sin, and that's sin in our own hearts, but also sin in the world. And we know that one day Jesus is going to put an end to all death, all pain, all opposition toward God. We know that one day there will be no more evildoers, no more natural disasters, no more wars, no more disease, no more physical pain, no more loss. But up until now, we're waiting. We're still waiting. But then 
you get to Revelation chapter 19. And Revelation chapter 19 is where it all changes. If you have a, a read through the Bible in a year plan, mark where, where you're supposed to get to Revelation chapter 19. For you, it might be the very last day in your reading plan, the, the 365th day of the year. Mark that day down because this is when God's victory is declared. And so in our passage today, the people erupt with rejoicing. In Revelation 19, 6 through 8, they say this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I don't know what the biggest crowd is that you've ever been a part of, maybe in a stadium somewhere, right? But if you can just imagine a great multitude, take what you've been a part of and multiply that times a thousand or more or a million, whatever, the biggest your mind can possibly grasp. All of the believers that have ever lived at any time gathered with the multitude of angels, and we don't even know how many there are, and we're gathering together and saying this out loud, hallelujah, our God reigns. That's what we're going to do. I think this is crazy because we have a glimpse into the future of our own words. This is what we're going to say. We're in this passage. In that multitude is you and I, and we're going to say that one day. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Through every moment of pain that you've experienced in your life, everything that you wish wasn't still going on, everything that you've struggled with, every bit of disaster, anything that you can picture in your head, this is where it all comes to an end. Verse 6 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This word hallelujah, it's a loan word from Hebrew that literally means praise Yahweh. And we're to praise him because he reigns, because he reigns against all these other powers who throughout the book of Revelation and throughout time have tried to rebel against God's authority. God triumphs. There is no contest. God wins. Secondly, this passage tells us that this multitude of heaven praise God, quote, for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The marriage supper has come. And in this image, our triune God is described as the groom and the church, God's people, you and I. We are the bride. And this is that allusion that Jesus is making to in the Last Supper when he says, I'm not going to taste of this again until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. This is what he's referring to. And this is an image that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea was commanded by God to marry a woman named Gomer, and, and she would ultimately be unfaithful to him. But God used this experience to communicate that despite Israel's unfaithfulness to him, he would have mercy on her and still be committed to his people. In Hosea 2.16, you don't have to turn there, but it says, and in this day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Then on to verse 19 and 20, it says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
But we see the same imagery also present in Isaiah. Again, it's not just something Jesus is starting. It's something that was promised from the beginning. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And for as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Finally, in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, which I won't read here, but just summarize, Jesus gives a parable of a wedding feast. And while this imagery is slightly different, the overall message is the same. It points forward to a future celebration in heaven, which is likened to a wedding feast. But again, going back to our passage now in chapter 19, we see that a big reason that we are to look forward to heaven is this marriage supper of the Lamb. Why should we bring that why should that bring us hope, rather? Why should we be excited about this? Because our minds immediately jump to the streets of gold. We think about Christ coming back, all these things. But I'm telling you, this is also a reason for us to look forward to heaven. Why is that? Number one, heaven is a place of celebration. And that's good news in and of itself. Let me ask you, in this last year and a half, have you ever had times where you were depressed? Or you felt down? because of the world around you, or because of the circumstances of life that you were going through. I tell you, whatever has been the source of your pain, your struggle, your sadness, in heaven, it's over. It's over. In heaven, we will rejoice and exult in God. And communion today is a reminder of that future celebration that's coming. This promise of a future marriage of the Lamb also should bring us hope because it shows us the kind of relationship that we have to God. God will be our spouse, as it were, but a perfect one. He will be joined to us forever in a covenant which he will never break. He will call us his bride. He will never forsake us. He will care for us. He will be our God. And not only this, but this image of God taking us as his bride shows us his love for us. We will not ever question, does God love me? For God's love will be an unbreakable constant towards us. And of course, this is already true of the child of God now, but this idea is further communicated to us. In this marriage supper of the Lamb, we're reminded that heaven is a place of God's presence, God's holiness, and God's love. Thirdly, we can rejoice in this thought of the future marriage supper of the Lamb because it shows us how we will be declared fully pure and righteous in God's sight. Again, this is something that has already been declared on our behalf now because of Christ's work on the cross. But in heaven, this is put on full display. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Notice the key words in all that, verses 7 and 8. I hope you're looking there. It says, it was granted to her. Meaning, we haven't earned this status of righteousness or purity. Rather, it comes solely from God. We, say, we, we see the same idea taught in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it says there, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then we see the ability to stand before God as his bride is a gift that has been granted to us. 
And therefore, any good deeds that we do in this life are a result of that righteous status that was first bestowed on us. So when we read in chapter 19, verse 8 now, which says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, it's not saying that we're the ones who got us to this place. It's not saying we're parading around our righteous deeds and look, somehow we've earned heaven. No, that's not the case at all. It's saying that it's only because of this righteous status that God has given us that we are able to even do good works. And any good works that we do are now put on display, not for our own glory, but for God's. Because of all these things that we've just reviewed, we are to rejoice at this thought of the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says that that to us in verse 9, Revelation 19, verse 9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those. If you are saved this morning, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you are blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. And here we see a bit of a mixed metaphor. For on one hand, there are texts where we're called the bride in this wedding feast, but Scripture also speaks of us, God's people, as as being the ones who are invited to this feast as well. And and this is certainly the kind of metaphor that's being used here in verse 9. But that use of both, both metaphors shouldn't concern us much. The idea is still the same. We will be present for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what it's trying to get across and celebrate with Jesus himself. Again, this idea of being invited to the great banquet in heaven is something that Jesus taught his disciples. Matthew 22 says this, and again Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son and sent his servants to come to those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. But then in verse eight of that chapter he says, then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the road and gathered all who they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with the guests. So in this parable, Jesus is primarily speaking out against the evil religious leaders of his day. They were the ones who were invited, as it were, due to the fact that they heard Jesus speak. They were there. They could have believed in him if they wanted to, yet they still rejected him. And thus Jesus says in this parable that many others will instead be invited to this banquet in the kingdom of God. Ordinary people, perhaps people who the Pharisees wouldn't have thought of as quote-unquote worthy. And these would be the ones who would actually enjoy the benefits of this great feast instead. So in that parable, what I want you to see is that we are the ordinary guests, the good and the bad, as it were. People of different backgrounds, chosen on the basis of God's good choice alone and not due to anything that we have done. In this parable, we are the ones that have been invited, who have received salvation through faith on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And so, we are blessed. So in Matthew 8, 11, Jesus pointed his disciples to the same future promise as well. And here's just a cool thought. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire scriptures. It says, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I don't, I don't care who you are. That's cool. <laughs> I get to, to, to recline at the table with Abraham, just have a, a one-on-one chat with Jacob. That's neat. I like that. 
That sounds really exciting to me. I can't wait. I hope you can't wait either. And, and this is what's being described here. We're partaking of this celebration, which is just like a miniature picture of a meal here, really. Understand that in the scriptures, there's a lot of times where when they were celebrating communion together, they were doing so in the context of a whole meal. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul's complaining about people going home hungry because the people are taking it all to themselves and not thinking of other people in the context of that meal. But understand, this is meant to be a picture of something like that. And it's saying, this is not the last time you're going to do this. One day, this is going to all point to something, and you'll be realized, and you'll be there, and you'll be sitting down with Jesus. You'll be sitting down with Abraham. You'll be sitting down with Isaac and Jacob and enjoy this future promise fulfilled. That's exciting. That's exciting to me. It points forward. So in this passage, we have this future hope. And it's summarized with these words in verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in summary of this future promise that we've looked at this morning, this promise of a day um, when we will celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb with our Savior, we're reminded that it's a wonderful and comforting thought. What does that mean for you and I as we celebrate communion together today? It means that today, as we partake of communion, we do so not only with an eye to the past, as we remember what Jesus has done, but we do so also with an eye to the future of what is still to come. This future celebration with our Savior in person, sitting across from one another. While the Last Supper in the upper room was the last meal of Jesus' earthly ministry, we are reminded here that it will not be his last meal with his people, absolutely. Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That means that one day we will eat and drink with him in heaven, and we look forward to that day. Secondly, this text reminds us that when we celebrate communion, we can do so with a smile on our face, because we know that this meal points forward to a day when evil will be vanquished, a day where death and pain will be no more, where depression and sadness are long behind us, when this whole world will be made new. Communion is this vastly complex thing. It's wonderful for us to be able to celebrate time in and time again, and, and, and we can reflect on so many different things. There's an element to which we are to be serious, where we consider our own lives to make sure that we are recommitting ourselves anew and afresh to God, but there's also an element of a celebration. As we drink, we're looking forward. We're saying that this is the la- not the last time that Jesus, in leaving this commandment for us, did so at least in part to get us to think about the future, when all of this will be fulfilled, when we will no longer celebrate just here on this earth in this imperfect world, remembering what he has done, longing for that day, but we will be there. We will be there. So as you partake, you can smile. I'm giving you full permission this morning to do so, to be happy, to celebrate. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we partake. One day we're going to eat and drink with him in the kingdom of heaven. That day is getting closer. It's getting closer. And when that day comes, we will certainly celebrate. One day 
as I said before, we're going to be with that, mix, that multitude of angels and, and individuals singing hallelujah for our Lord, the God, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. That will be us. Here's our great hope. In the end, and this is all you need to know about Revelation, in the end, God wins. God wins. And when he does, we will celebrate together. Remember that. As we do so, I want to just circle back to what I said at the beginning. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you have that future hope? If so, I invite you to place your faith and trust in him today. Either now in this moment you can, when I pray in just a moment, or you can talk about it with your parents, talk about it with us as pastors, as elders, as deacons, whomever. Don't let another day go by before you trust in him. For us, let us rejoice as we partake. So let me pray, and then I'll invite the men forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we first of all want to give you great thanks for the work that was done on our behalf through the sacrifice that was willingly made by Jesus Christ in accordance with the will of God so that our sins could be paid for and so that we might be at peace with God so that we could be redeemed as children. We thank you and we look back and we remember. At the same time, Lord, this morning we want to look forward to this great marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming, and we long for that day, Lord Jesus. May that day come soon. For those who are here this morning, maybe who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that, I pray that today would be that day that they would say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. Yes, I want to accept your death on the cross for my sins. I want to be forgiven. I want to be called your child. I accept and believe and desire to follow you. God, I pray that many would make that decision this morning. So bless us this morning as we celebrate together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite the men to come forward at this time.